This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We've got a super interesting show today, John. Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, we've got uh, some cool guests uh, to talk about uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and this is interesting. We're hearing more and more about it, obviously, as uh, computers are getting smarter and getting into all aspects of life. Uh, but what is the energy cost? to develop this artificial intelligence and how much does it take when it's running as well? You would be surprised at how much. Isn't that why the matrix shows humans being batteries for the robots? It all makes sense now. <laughs> I totally get it. Uh, we'll also be talking about self-driving cars and you know, we've talked a lot about it on this program and you know, we're hearing some estimates that it'll be here in five years, like for fully self-driving autonomous vehicles. But we're going to be talking with an expert uh, out of Waterloo who says it'll be longer because in areas such as Canada, we get bad weather. We have snow. We have snow. Self-driving cars do not like snow. And so we're going to listen to what some of the challenges they're having with that. And uh, we'll be talking travel tech, some uh, tech to take if you are uh, traveling, which we will be traveling we will. Yes. Okay, let's look at some of the news uh, in the tech world right now. A lot of uh, folding screen phones happening. Uh, you know, Motorola, they have uh, finally released their Motorola Razr. Samsung has released their Galaxy Z Flip. But there's some challenges with these. Durability. Durability. And so... People are finding that there are issues with the screens. Uh, with the Razr... Uh, some of them are finding that they're peeling because the screens are essentially like a plastic. Well, it was interesting though because the way the Motorola folds, it kind of like keeps it in a safe kind of, like it doesn't crease it like we saw with the uh, the Galaxy Fold. It actually has like this little weird action that happens that sort of gently curves it. Yeah. Um, but apparently that little zone is starting to delaminate, I guess because of the additional pressure. And every time you fold these devices uh if you pick up a piece of plastic and you start folding it it will actually get warm yes and you'll in, depending on the kind of plastic you'll see like a little white line yes and that's essentially what's happening to these devices is that they're delaminating from the actual lcd screen part uh the coating that's on it is coming off due to the action of the fold the heat and let's be honest when you get one of these phones you're going to fold the hell out of it. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, and that's the thing that we've seen. Even uh, uh, some outlets have been using folding machines to test the durability of this stuff. Yeah. Which isn't really... It's a, not a real world application. Like uh, some people are having problems with the Razer and Motorola released a video of their folding machine, like yeah. testing these yeah. phones. But you got to realize that you got humans, all sorts of different pressure, you know, opening and closing this phone. It's in your pocket. There's keys or coins. There's crap all getting in there. Uh, how do you test for that? Other you, than sticking these things in a washing machine with a bunch of keys. <laughs> yeah, but it's just one of those things that we're just never going to know how long it lasts until we've actually let that play out with yeah. an average use cycle. Not this, hey, I've got a crazy new piece of tech. I'm going to fold it 400 times in front of you to show you how cool it is. So, so the Galaxy uh, Z Flip uh, as well or Z Flip, depending what country you're in, uh, just releasing. And some people are saying there's some issues with that as well. They're using a thin glass technology, but they're saying, some people, that it's just not that much more durable than the Razer screen. 
Right. Because, I mean, it's still, at the end of the day, just some type of material that's adhered to the to the screen. Yeah. And it's just as susceptible as a plastic piece would be. Yes. Uh, it's some kind of other magical thing from space that Samsung's using. But the other issue that the, the Flip is having as well, though, is it's got a number of sort of... Um, filters and covers on the folding hinge itself that are supposed to keep the dust out. And some early results from some teardowns are showing that it's really not keeping much dust out at all. I feel bad for these manufacturers sometimes like, uh, so I fix it, uh, did a test with the, uh, uh, the Z flip, the galaxy Z flip from Samsung. And they, they stuck this poor phone in a bag full of purple dust and shook it all around uh, to show that dust can get in the hinge, even though there's a, a dust filter in there. Yeah. But I guess, you know, it depends how fine the dust is. Do you know what I mean? And are you going to stick your phone in a bag of dust? Well, if you stick your phone in your pocket, you've got a bunch of fine pocket lint. Yeah. Uh, I know, especially when you get a new phone uh, or a new case, especially, everything sticks to it. Yeah. Right. And so just imagine that getting stuck in this hinge over time, that's going to build up. And at some point it's going to be causing some pressure on that, on that display. We still have a lot more to talk about on today's program. And don't forget to enter our contest at get connected media. <laughs> don't forget to visit our contest page at getconnectedmedia.com. We're giving away a pair of bare dynamic headphones over the ear headphones. These things are amazing. Uh, all you have to do is subscribe to our newsletter. So hit the newsletter tab, subscribe, and you'll be entered to win. These things are worth $1,000. They're, they're amazing. They're awesome. Uh, coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and how much energy is it taking to write these algorithms. You would be shocked. Stay tuned. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We've talked a lot about AI, artificial intelligence. We're seeing it more and more in uh, our everyday lives. Uh, everything from computers uh, that uh, play chess and go, uh, autonomous vehicles, a big thing, uh, to computers that can actually interact and chat with us as well. But at what cost? Uh, you know, a lot of people are concerned about, uh, you know, computers taking over. Uh, there's another thing to be concerned about when it comes to AI. It's the electrical or electricity cost on uh, how much these uh, these servers, these computers are uh, taking up. We've uh, got a great uh, guest on the line to uh, go through uh, some of this. Her name is Sasha Lucioni. She's a uh, an actual uh, director of scientific projects at Mila, which is an AI research institute in Canada. Thanks for joining us, Sasha. Great to be here. It's an interesting topic because uh, you know I'm excited about technology. I, I'm excited about AI as well. But I, I never stop to think at you know how much electricity uh, this is uh, taking up. And uh, you know from what I've understood, uh, you know researching this a bit, it's quite significant. It depends on the approaches that are used, and um, the issue nowadays is that um, we want models to be more and more powerful, to cover more and more cases, so before we would be kind of happy, I mean, in the good old days, it would be enough to try to distinguish a cat and a dog, you know, kind of toy examples, nowadays they're being deployed in the real world, so there's more edge cases, you need more data, you need um, bigger algorithms, so in terms of neural networks, they'll have more weight, they'll have more layers, and this takes more energy to train them. And actually, it just takes more energy to deploy them in real time as well. So we're going towards the direction, um, because people expect AI to be better and better, that it'll consume more and more energy. 
Do you have any examples, Sasha, of how much energy uh, you know, different types of AI take up? Um, so I can give you absolute values are kind of hard because very few people actually share this. So, you know, when, when people will publish something, they'll typically just say, um, for example, what the accuracy is. We won't actually say how many hours they trained or, on how, or sometimes on how many GPUs. It depends. So, um, but for example, you mentioned Go. So Go, um, the way it was solved is by a method that's called reinforcement learning. And reinforcement learning is essentially trying something, a task, for example, playing a game or solving labyrinths and keep trying it until you um, until you manage to do it and by learning, you know, from your mistakes. And so it's really, um, it, it takes, it's time consuming. So in terms of Go and beating AlphaGo, it was like millions and millions of, of, of games played in order to get strategies that will cover all possible use cases. So um, in, in terms of reinforcement learning, you essentially have an algorithm that runs for, for I mean, years if you want to, if you want to put it cumulatively, but it's going to be like, hundreds of thousands of, of experiments uh, for any given use case. And so and a game like Go, because you have so many different possibilities, it gives you an incredible amount of money. I was reading a, uh, a Wired uh, magazine, and uh, they actually have quoted you in it uh, as well. Uh, it uh, was a great story. It uh, I think it's called AI can do great things if it doesn't burn the planet. Uh, they used one example of... Uh, um, researchers uh, at OpenAI in San Francisco, uh, which uh, you know talked about an algorithm capable of learning through trial and error, um, much like you were talking about how to uh, manipulate uh, the pieces of a Rubik's cube using a robotic hand. Uh, but it took about a thousand desktop computers uh, plus a dozen machines running specialized graphic chips doing all these calculations uh, over uh, many many months. Uh, you know, and so some some estimates and again you know it's hard like you said to get all the information to make proper estimates um they said uh you know some of these estimates that it took up about 2.8 gigawatt hours of electricity uh which is roughly equal to the output of three nuclear power plants for an hour which that's an edge case so definitely not representative of like the cookie cutter machine learning algorithm but it's definitely becoming less an edge case as we're going forward with more complex algorithms uh and more data what are some other examples of uh, AI, uh, you know, for the listeners out there, just so they can wrap their head around this? Well, actually, there was a really interesting article late last year um, about uh, natural language processing, um, NLP, and this is what that mm, using text in order to, um, for example, translate between one language to another, or for question answering, or for summarizing text. So anything to do with text, essentially. Um, and then um, they did an estimate of, uh, for example, training um, a very common neural network architecture for a translation task um, on, on a language that's common and has a lot of data can um, pollute as much as five cars in their lifetime. So basically tra training from, like, for example, if you wanted to train from scratch an algorithm that will translate English text into Spanish text, um, and you take all this data, you take Wikipedia, you take, you know, some websites from the Internet, and then um, you, you train the algorithm for, once again, months you get uh, something equivalent to that. So it, it, we're talking about, yeah, huge, huge algorithms that take months to actually learn, you know, how to translate between these languages. Do you, <clears throat> sorry, do you, do you think that there's any, um, anything that can be done to sort of reduce this? Uh, we ha we've talked a lot about these uh, edge processing uh, that's coming in more and more these days where the smartphones or the various devices you have actually have the computing power built in to do a lot of this processing without having to go to the cloud and to the data center and that type of thing. Um, do you think that's going to help uh, lessen the chance of burning the planet? 
So there's definitely uh, um, front-end computing is becoming more and more um, possible. Uh, but also, for example, there's a trend that I, I really like. Um, it's uh, the idea of making networks that are more energy efficient um, by kind of uh, depriving them of resources. So basically, the, the first case for this is, is, for example, countries where you don't, don't have the equivalent of, you know, thousands of desktop computers, et cetera. So these are neural networks that are meant to function in a, in a data-poor setting or in a resource-poor setting. And um, nowadays, that they're being it, it's like different technologies are being developed for this. It can be applied to different types of algorithms. So that's really interesting. And there's people who are working on these chips as well. So, for example, a chip that even if it, uh, if it receives intermittent electricity due to, for example, a faltering energy grid in a developing country, uh, will still be able to function. And so, and so it's really interesting because it's like a use case that, that's very relevant for a lot of people, but it's also relevant for people who, who have the energy but don't want to use it. Um, so this is something that I find really interesting, and, and I'm really happy that people are making progress on this. We're talking with Sasha Lucioni. She is the Director of Scientific Projects uh, at Mila, which is an AI research institute in Canada, about artificial intelligence, data centers, how much electricity they are uh, consuming. Uh, I referenced that Wired magazine uh, article earlier, and uh, in there they uh, uh, reference uh, the Department of Energy, and I believe that's down in the U.S. Uh, They estimate that data centers account for about 2% that's quite a bit, 2% of total U.S. electricity usage. Worldwide, they say data centers consume about 200 terawatt hours of power per year, which is more than some countries. And uh, the forecast doesn't look good. Uh, They're predicting by 2030, computing and communications technology will consume between 8 and 20% of the world's electricity, with data centers accounting for a third of that. So, Sasha, what... What are companies doing to uh, to mitigate this? Well, I think that it's becoming, uh, it's one of these things that people are taking into account now because before it was kind of like, oh, well, you know, we have all this data, we can do all these ex- uh, experiments, and if they fail, it's okay, we'll do more. So it's like, I like making the parallel with, with calorie, uh, taking into account calories. So before, like, you didn't see how many calories that you know, whatever junk food was. So, you know, you just had it, but now you actually see it. So maybe it won't change your mind, but at least you'll take it into account when you're making your decisions. And um, so this is starting to happen in ML. People are starting to realize how, how power hungry this is. Um, what's interesting is that conversations are, are starting to be made with regards to, you know, the trade-off between sustainability or reducing power consumption and performance. So now it's, um, in, in major ML conferences, people are, are debating whether, you know, is it, is it worth, um, for example, going having an accuracy that's, for example, 2% higher if it consumes 10 times more electricity. So, you know, and they're plotting this and they're saying, well, you know, until you, you can have a, hit, hit a sweet spot and say, well, we're going to stop here, we're going to cut it off because it's going to be only small increments after that. And um, also we developed uh, an online tool for machine learning people, um, researchers and practitioners in order to estimate their emissions. So uh, taking into account the region, the grid you're connected to, the type of hardware you're using and how long you your experiment is, is rolling. Uh, you can have uh, an estimate of how much um, CO2 you, you produce and so either you know offset it or or just take into take it into account and, and try to reduce that and, and to realize which which factors impact um, emissions the most. Are there any big companies that we know that are taking more of a lead on this like offsetting some of the the carbon that uh, they're producing? Actually, most almost almost all major cloud providers offset. So uh, Google offsets, uh, Google Cloud offsets, uh, Microsoft Azure and AWS. They all do. Microsoft has recently um, announced that they're going carbon negative. So they're actually trying to offset all of the emissions that they have made since the uh, beginning of their company. 
which is uh, really interesting. So it's really attractively. And also they're trying to uh, make their whole supply chain sustainable. So they're trying to really uh, reduce the, 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 the consumption on, on all levels in, the, in their process. So they're definitely taking a lead on this. So are we doomed or will we be able to pull ourselves back from the brink here? Um, I think I think what's really important is that um, people stop seeing AI as this kind of, you know, something that makes your phone understand you better or Google Maps get, get you to places faster. And, and we start seeing it as a real tool to fight climate change. Like um, I was one of the co-authors of a recent paper. It's called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. And we have like 100 pages of examples of ways that machine learning can be used to forecast electricity, to do better weather prediction, to like all these different things for, to, to improve transportation systems. And I, I really call for people instead of, you know, making the next next cool phone to focus on these kinds of solutions. So it, it's really proactively addressing this issue and, and tackling it head on. So I, I honestly believe that machine learning can be a tool for good. Well, I, I'm uh, excited about that. Uh, we've been talking with Sasha Lucioni. She is a uh, director of uh, scientific projects at Mila, which is an AI Research uh, Institute here in Canada. Thanks for joining us, Sasha. My pleasure. We come back from the break. More to tech, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Back after this, you are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. We talk a lot about uh, autonomous vehicles uh, in our show because we love self-driving cars. <laughs> I can't wait for them to get here. Uh, I myself have a Tesla Model 3. I don't have the full self-driving package, but I've got the auto steer. And I'm pretty excited about that because it makes my drive so much easier in the mornings. But we are just a matter of a few years away from, I think, some real autonomous self-driving cars being out on the road. But I question uh, Canada here. What about winter? (laughs) (laughs) And the snow and the bad weather we get. Uh, We have an expert on the line. His name is Christoph uh, Czernecki. Trineski, uh, he is uh, a professor in the electrical and computer engineering department and also head of the ge- generative software lab at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for joining us, Christoph. Thanks for being here. I wanted to bring you on the line. Uh, you were in, uh, mentioned in a really interesting uh, Wired magazine article about inclement weather, <laughs> snow. Uh, you've actually developed, uh, I guess, uh, uh software for autonomous vehicles. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, that's right. So uh, in about 2016, we we got um, a vehicle that had all the actuators needed for self-driving. And uh, we embarked on building a software stack so that we could control it and demonstrate on public roads, which we did in 2018. And that vehicle was the first one to receive uh, a permit to be tested on public roads in Canada, uh, in Ontario, and to test program, so we can actually understand the challenges of building uh, an autonomous vehicle, but also to train students. And so you actually had this car out on the road, and you didn't hit anyone or any small animals. No, we didn't. <laughs> Obviously, we had a safety driver. Whenever we operated, whatever we um, tested on public roads, we have a safety driver that would take over. Uh, you know, whenever there is an unforeseen situation. And and generally, how were the results? It was, uh, let's put it this way, um, for, for a relatively simple domain, um, which is sort of urban driving, uh, mostly two-lane, with kind of, um, you know, not, not too heavy traffic, 
uh, we had to take over, you know, every couple of minutes because there was something new that we haven't uh, developed yet um, in terms of whether it's the recognition or whether it's the decision making. So actually, uh, you know, I would say this is a, a reasonable prototype that you can develop, you know, within these, you know, maybe you know, 24 months. Uh, and if you want to get to something that operates for thousands of kilometers be, uh, before so-called disengagements, well, we're talking about uh, investing hundreds of millions. And if you want to have something that matches human performance, well, no one is really there yet. And, you know, if you look at the investment that went into Waymo alone, which is one of the leading systems, if not the leading system, it was more than $3 billion dollars in 2019 alone. I guess you didn't get $3 billion. No. <laughs> um, let's talk about bad weather. Uh, you know, Canada, it snows a lot in many parts of uh, uh, the country. You know, what kind of challenges exist there for self-driving vehicles? There's a whole host of issues. Uh, the most prominent is uh, just the impact on the perception of basically the uh, uh, you know the eyes of the of the vehicle. Uh, so let's say cameras and laser scanners get impacted by snowfall the same way uh, how you know you, you get obstructed vision when when you get blowing snow, for example, or heavy snowfall. Uh, and this also confuses then the AI in, in the car because. Uh, on the one hand side, there's less information that, that reaches the algorithms, uh, but also the world looks differently. Uh, and AI, it's kind of brittle. When, when, you, when you give it something new that it hasn't seen, it tends to make mistakes. And it's not as good as, as a human in, in terms of generalizing to, to new situations. So that's, that's sort of one, one, one of the challenges. There's several others we can talk about. Well, I, I'm I'm not an expert in this field, uh, but I just think looking at a snowy road, if everything is white, how does it know where to go other than just seeing what cars are out there or, or obstacles? Well, that's that's a great question. That, that would have been my next <laughs> item on the list. So there are roughly two types of um, automated driving systems out there. Uh, one is that it sort of tries to on the spot, figure out what's you know what the what the road environment is and and just drive. And so let's say Tesla is in the, in that spot. Although Tesla is technically speaking is, is level two system, meaning that the driver is still in control and it sort of does say 95 percent of the of the task depending on the environment. Uh, but uh, most pretty much all the systems that are operating in urban environments today, you know, whether it's Waymo, whether it's Cruise. Uh, Aurora or any other of those, they all rely on a map. And so the map is typically uh, built ahead of time. It can be updated on the, on the fly, but essentially the map provides you with the things that you might not see, right? So uh, if you can localize yourself, um, you know, basically geolocate yourself with centimeter accuracy and you have a map that's also accurate and if that all works well you know where the lane is so that's an important part of uh, of making that decision but that alone is not enough because 
um, let's say if, if the if the road is not properly plowed, you would sometimes see in winter that people just redefine the lane. Uh, more like in the middle of the of the lane, or, or, or maybe in, in these parts of the road that others have already created tracks, and and um, it's easier to drive as opposed to maybe you know hitting some snow drifts on the sides. Uh, and this is something that humans do very well, um, and it's it's something that's more difficult for AI to do in a in a very uh, let's say reliable way, right? So. To the, for example, determine is this snowdrift something that is actually dangerous to drive over, or is it is it okay to drive over? And it's not just the the size of the snowdrift, but it's also, you know, is it icy? Um, is it some, you know, is, is it the type of snow that if you if you hit it, you start skidding, right? So there's there's a lot of decision making that has to happen, and and perception, you know, like really recognizing what's the situation. Does that uh, process get more complicated at night, or do these sensors that are typically employed are they, you know, they have night vision and that type of thing, or would this be much more complex at night, especially with a, a snowy condition? It, it depends what sensors are being used. So certainly, uh, just cameras in vis- invisible spectrum would be impacted, uh, and you would have to rely on headlights. You know, the same way a human would rely on headlights. Uh, the laser scanner actually operates very very well at night, so that's not a problem. But if you want to, for example, like recognize the texture of the snow, like the type of the snow, classify that, uh, then it, it uh, that might be actually impacted in, in at night, right? So you, you would kind of know, you know, how how high the drifts are, but but trying to kind of make out what it is, it would be more difficult. Christoph, knowing what you know, because you've had your hands involved in, in programming, you know, self-driving cars, are we close to having, you know, full, I think it's called level five autonomy, where the car truly can drive by itself, taking into account, you know, snow and inclement weather? Like how far away do you think we are? I think there are still significant challenges to be to be addressed and you know i guess predictions are always difficult i'd say that within you know the next maybe 10 years we will have pockets of deployments where maybe there's some possibility of of actual um, economically viable business based on self-driving i don't think we will have widespread use of it yet uh you know the, the type of system where where you can completely zoom out and just go to sleep and uh, you know during your ride uh, i believe that this is and particularly also in in our weather conditions um this is going to take quite some time so elon musk is wrong <laughs> <laughs> well i suppose i don't know i mean I, I could imagine he might he might come up with some interpretation of his predictions from uh, you know last year summer last year <laughs> to still uh, be able to say well you know uh, this is what i meant i don't know i'm just speculating well christoph i want to thank you for joining us today that was very insightful thanks so much christoph he's a professor in electrical and computer engineering uh, at uh, the university of waterloo he's also the head of the generative software lab uh, we'll talk soon thank you 
Yeah, thanks so much. When we come back from the break, a lot more to talk about here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You're back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. Well, John and I are uh, doing some traveling coming up, so I thought uh, we'd talk about travel tech. Yes. Uh, we're going to be on some planes, trains. Well, um, one of the, the coolest things that I found recently is something called a USB data blocker. It's also called a USB condom sometimes. And what this is, is anytime you're traveling and, you know, in on your airplane seat back now, it's very common to have a USB port. Yes. For charging, which is great. But what's on the other side of that device or that port? Um, a USB. KG, KGB. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what a USB data blocker does is it's a little plug that you plug your USB cable into and then you plug it into that port, whether it's a seat back or you know a charging station at the airport or at a conference even. And it turns off the data lines on that USB cable. So it actually prevents anything nefarious happening to your device uh, where you don't know what's on the other side of that. And if you've ever plugged in... Uh, I think it's. I think it happens this way with Android, but on on I, an iOS, when you plug in your phone into a device that's considered to be a computer, it'll ask you, "Do you trust this device?" Yeah, and you say no because it's you know my Air Canada seat back because I don't know what's on the other side of that. It won't send any data, but this data blocker negates that need completely because all it gives you is the power lines to charge your device. Well, I've got something cool. Um, and I know that people uh, probably have some of these already, but traveling with wireless noise canceling headphones. You got to do it because if you're going to get some time on that plane ride or train ride or not driving in an automobile as a passenger, it's nice to be able to just kind of close your eyes and get a little bit of sleep and nothing does that better by canceling out that annoying noise outside of you. So uh, the ones that I like or the ones that I think are quite cool is uh, from Bose, actually. Uh, They've come out with their... um, headphones the 700 version and they've got a couple of versions but the 700 version is absolutely beautiful these things are uh, gorgeous in design um, and so that's part of it too right you want to just love the tech that you own and uh, this is something that I find uh, very very cool another thing that I want to quickly tell you about as well um, is uh, the is actually a drone. And I know this sounds crazy. Why would I travel with a drone? But uh, DJI uh, came out with their Mavic Mini and this thing is super small. Like it is unbelievable how small it is and how much it folds up to. And the idea of being able to bring a drone with you on a trip is kind of like bringing a camcorder or a camera, you know, and with the idea that when you get to the place where you're traveling to, if you get some great opportunities uh, to film with it, then it gives you just uh, some really interesting ways to get some cool footage. However, drones are a problem, right? There's lots of restrictions to how you can fly them and all these sorts of things. Well, the DJI Mac Mini actually fits under, it comes under the weight category, which allows you to fly it without having a license. You still have to follow all the rules, but you don't actually have to get specific license for places you go. It actually comes in at 249 grams. That's one gram under uh, what it needs to be. And the cool thing is, is that this thing folds up into such a small package, you could actually fit it into a small carry-on, small handbag, you know, or even put it in your backpack in one of the smaller pockets. That's how small it is. But the way that the arms work is when you extend it, extend them out because they fold into the device itself. 
when you actually extend them out, the base of the unit is actually comparable uh, to some of the bigger drones. And, and the reason why this is important is because you don't want to be flying this thing and have it blow away. So you definitely want to be able to have some control. So what I found is that this particular Mac Mint, uh, Mavic Mini uh, fits into that really quite well. So those are some ideas that I had. Uh, what else you got, John? Uh, so I recently found, uh, I was looking for a new uh, international worldwide charger. Yeah. And this one called Epica is the, one of the highest rated ones I found on like multiple websites okay. on Amazon. Everyone loves it. It's about 25 bucks. It actually has, you know, those little sliders that you push out so you get the different uh, plugs for the different countries. Yes. Um, it also has four USB ports oh. and, and a USB-C port. Oh. And it's all metal construction, so it doesn't feel cheap. I need one of those. Yeah. I, I have, uh, I've got some great ones too. I've got the Logics ones. They have two USB ports and they have all the international plug standards on it. Yeah. But I would love to have a little USB-C port on there right. too. Yeah. Because everything is going USB-C. How much was that? 25 bucks <laughs> on Amazon. Oh, you can't lose. Yeah. Uh, another quick thing. Uh, we tried this before, the uh, Ely translator, spelled I-L-I. And this is like this little, looks like a little stick. It's a one-way translator. Uh, essentially, but does different languages, French, I think Japanese. Uh, it's at uh, imilly.com. You have to check this thing out. Google Translate has a pretty big update too that works offline now too. Oh, really? Yeah. You just download your country ahead no. of time. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have to take a break. When we come back, it's our uh, favorite tech of the week. Stay tuned. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here with John Beeler. It's that time, our favorite tech of the week. What do you got, John? So I stumbled across a really interesting uh, solution for visually impaired people that use a cane. And it's called, the, it's a smart smart cane, as you would expect, made by a company called WeWalk. And this is, it looks like a regular cane, but it has a little bit of a piece of electronics at the top. It actually has uh, ultrasonic sensors to detect uh, obstacles at the head and chest level. It has a voice assistant. You can actually use Alexa on it. You can uh, use it with your smartphone and have Google Maps navigation as well. Uh, it just sounds like a really uh, interesting take on adding some technology to a cane that a person would be using already and also give them some additional security as far as navigating the world by letting them know they're about to hit something, give them the turn-by-turn -turn directions, and even have Alexa. So is the cane talking? Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. We walk. WeWalk.io. Very, very cool. That's all the time we have left for the program. Don't forget to check out the app show every Sunday here on the Chorus Radio Network and on a News Talk Radio, CKNW 980, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And, of course, you can watch the video podcasts of this show and the app show on our website, getconnectedmedia.com. I want to thank everyone that helps put the show together, John, Stephen, Nigel, Paul, and Christina, and, of course, AJ. See you again next time. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.